0: So we're back to cracks in postmodernity with a very special guest. We've been waiting a very long time to have Abigail Favali. And here she is.
1: Yay. I'm so glad you're doing this podcast. Um, I love it. It's funny. Um, I don't know when it was, maybe a year ago. I was like, Hey, Stephen, let's do a podcast together. And then I totally ghosted you. And you were like, I'll just do my own podcast. And it's awesome. So I love listening and I'm fine. I'm glad I'm finally on. So, this will be fun. Yes.
0: So, for people who don't know and they should know who you are, uh, give a little bit of background of how you ended up where you are today and what you're working on.
1: Okay, great. So, I'm a fairly, um, I don't know, I tell this story so often. There's like the two minute version and the 30 minute version. So, I'm just going to dive in and it'll be definitely not be the 30 minute version. Um, so, I grew up as an evangelical Protestant. And became really interested in questions of womanhood and gender. And when I went to college, I um, that interest took me into feminism. And so I studied feminism and gender theory as an undergraduate and then as a graduate. Um, and by that time, I was I kind of left evangelicalism and was more in this kind of postmodern, everything's a metaphor, Christianity is a beautiful metaphor kind of space. Um, And I was uh, doing work in feminist literary criticism and gender theory. And then toward the end of my 20s, I had a kind of disorienting and sudden conversion to Catholicism. And then the first couple of years of being Catholic um, were basically me just sort of wrestling with my feminist hangups about Catholicism. And the process of that brought me into... I kind of followed my interest in women and gender, but in the context of Catholic theology and Catholic sacramentality and a way of seeing. And so, I still, so now I'm trying. I'm I'm in that that kind of weird space, um, which I love because I've found resources for thinking about gender and the body and womanhood in Catholicism that I certainly didn't have growing up as an evangelical. And uh...
0: okay, so it's gonna merge oh. them. Don't worry.
1: That's fine. So I, I, to my surprise, I found a lot of resources in Catholicism that I didn't have as an evangelical and even ironically did not really find in secular or postmodern feminism. And now I write about gender from a Catholic perspective. So I have a couple of books in that, um, in that vein, I have, uh, for people who are interested more in that weird conversion that I had from postmodern feminism to Catholicism, I wrote a whole book about it. It's called Into the Deep. And I have a new book coming out, which will be released May 1st called The Genesis of Gender, which is more of a deeper dive into the concept of gender, how that concept developed and how that way of seeing gender is different from the Catholic way of seeing.
0: Yeah, so I first discovered your work through Church Life Journal, mm-hmm. I believe, and then I read Into the Deep, and I recommended it to a lot of people because, for me, this is—I feel like—the most deeply millennial conversion story. Uh, I'll I've take heard. that. Yes. I will take that.
1: That very ig- ignomious honor. Yes, no,
0: because it's—it um, just hits on so much of the millennial experience, but also. Um, highlights a lot of things that attracts other people around our age group who to Catholicism to faith Mm -hmm. um and I think a lot of it like you you pull a lot of Ratzinger a lot of Mm -hmm. Augustine and I think this just embodies so much of our experience because the worldview we were raised with is like super um um naive, I guess I would say, like, you know, as long as you're a good person, you be yourself, everything Mm -hmm. will be fine. Mm -hmm. But then you hit a wall at a certain point where you realize, actually, no, like, I am trying to be myself, I'm trying to be good, but that's not working. Because first of all, there's this deep need for some kind of metaphysical truth, some higher purpose that can ground me and my identity and reality. But also, like, there's original sin, like, I'm not Mm -hmm. a good person. I do stupid things all the time and I can try really hard to be good. That doesn't fix it. So I think like pulling from Augustine, pulling from Ratzinger, or Benedict, you get mm. this concept of the abyss. And I feel like that really mm. just, it fleshes out what it feels like to be growing up in this kind of environment um, yeah. and to discover that like there is this divine being who enters into the abyss through, you know, yeah. the incarnation um, but also I just find really compelling that like you started out evangelical mm-hmm. then you know go to this kind of secular feminist mode and then from there discover Catholicism mm-hmm. like so you've kind of seen it all which makes your yeah. story very compelling but also like just down to earth because like
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know you're not talking abstractly like you've been there you know you've seen all these things right yeah. right
1: yeah no I've I've come to think that that is an asset I think when I first became Catholic. I felt, you know, it was such a it was such a worldview inversion that for the first couple of years I thought, oh, what am I gonna, you know, I've I've spent almost a decade creating this career as a secular feminist academic, more or less, and what am I gonna do now, you know? But it's turned out to be really fruitful, um, and so the the trick now is keeping hold of how I used to think, because the more I'm Catholic, the longer I'm Catholic. The harder that can be to access, especially charitably. So that's something I'm like really committed to. Okay, like, how did I think about this when I believed this? Because it's so easy to create, you know, straw men of evangelicalism or postmodernism or feminism, mm-hmm. which isn't ultimately helpful.
0: Yeah. And I think the other thing that's really helpful is that so much of the conclusions you come to is rooted in like very real experiences of your own body like because Mm -hmm. i find that so many of these quote-unquote catholic feminists or catholic writers on gender and sex like are just super um theoretical like everything's very abstract and like there are a lot Mm -hmm. of pretty ideas you can pull out of you know the theological tradition but when you start from your body and especially from the female body like Mm -hmm you discover that these aren't just great ideas, but this is like, this is who we are. Like, this is how our bodies are built and how it's rooted, Um, you know, there is this integration between the soul, the identity and the body. Um, And that's why like one of my favorite articles was from Church Life, The Newest War on Women, which I think that was 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, But you start out, I think this is like a Hindu myth that you you, Mm -hmm. uh, quoted. It's Buddhist it's Buddhist. yeah okay mm-hmm. okay yeah. they won't cancel me for that um <laughs> well so- it is
1: indian so indian. it's indian, okay. Pupilist,
0: indian yeah. mm-hmm. so this is a she's not a goddess mm-hmm.
1: no she is um one of the the buddha's prior lives
0: okay so mm-hmm. she it's explain the story so she cuts her breasts off to feed her child Is that what no happens?
1: it's so it's such a cool story i mean okay. it's bizarre it takes this really bizarre turn but basically there's okay i have to remember now it's actually been oh, am sorry i'm pretty sure it's um there's a woman who's starving and can't feed her child okay and so rupia vadi i think is her name i can't quite remember but she yeah, cuts off sure. her breasts to help this woman. And that, that act of compassion is so great that she basically is granted a a prize. And that prize is to become a man because that's kind of the next step up in the the cycle of existence that eventually leads to Nirvana, right? So she like levels up basically. Uh, But then it describes, so it's interesting because like, because of the compassion, first her, her body is healed. Uh-huh. Um, which is so beautiful. Right. So she like gives up her body and then like gets her body back. It's restored. But then the next, the very next part is actually her femaleness is completely taken away from her. And then she's made male. Um, and it, it describes her breasts, like res- like receding and disappearing. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: And then you relate this to your own experience of like, you know, your teenage years and like,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah, just explain that for people who haven't read it. Like, how do you, you know, root this in your own experience of your your own femininity?
1: Right. Well, I, so I was reading this, the reason there's another myth I talk about in the beginning too, which is from Ovid's Metamorphoses, Mm -hmm. which is about um, a character who is raped by, I think Poseidon. And then his, he basically is like, oh shoot, sorry about that. Um, You know, let me give you a gift. Um, And she's, she's like, okay, he's like this, you know, like malevolent genie basically like rapes her and then says, okay, now what's your wish? And then she says, okay, I wish to become a man. So this can never happen to me again. Right. So these, both of these stories that are from the ancient world really um, describe women you know, wanting to escape from femaleness. And I, so I, I take those myths and I connect them to some things that are happening in our culture, but also, yeah, my own personal experience of ambivalence with my own femaleness. Um, I've, I've definitely had experiences and, and especially around breasts, which is interesting. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I was one of those, um, one of those lucky girls that developed early as they say, <laughs> so I was like, I was this kind of like busty monster in sixth grade <laughs> that like towered over everybody, you know, and, um, people made fun of me. And, uh, and so I, I think that made me very self-conscious about having breasts and I hated having them. Right. Um, cause they're, I think the female body is so sexualized in our culture that now going through adolescence and going through female puberty, can be a very, I mean, it's an uncomfortable and weird experience anyway, but I think one aspect of it that's particularly weird is that your body is suddenly hyper-sexualized by, you know, other people are kind of noticing it in a way. And that creates this almost alienation with oneself and one's body. So I, yeah, I kind of relate that experience to these myths. Like I recognize, even though I, I kind of reject, for example, that that, you know, the idea that's represented in the Buddhist text, that being a man is better than being a woman. I reject that. Uh But at the same time, I, I recognize the experiences that are being depicted, this desire to kind of be free from femaleness. Um, And a lot of my own kind of spiritual and intellectual journey, I think has been about finding a way to discover the dignity of femaleness and to see that as a good thing because that I didn't get that in my evangelical upbringing, which is very suspicious of the body and sexuality and particularly female sexuality is seen as this like gateway to sin. And then I I didn't find it in feminism either because feminism, secular feminism has a pretty deep suspicion of femaleness Mm -hmm. and also has this implicit idea that what freedom looks like for women is to be able to function, especially physiologically like a man. So our fertility is a threat. Um, so there's this kind of mass implicit masculine ideal, even in, in a lot of feminism. So it's it's in Catholicism that I, I found this way of, of really thinking about the dignity of the body and the meaning of femaleness. Um, but yeah, the, the article you're talking about is about uh, basically about the the kind of flight from femaleness in our culture that we're seeing increasingly in young women um, who are choosing to to go under, to undergo pretty serious medical procedures um, in order to be able to present themselves as men. So they're amputating breasts, even as children as young as 13 are are getting mastectomies. There's doc, I mean, that's documented in the peer reviewed literature. Um, they're going on cross-sex hormones so that they can um, avoid the female pure puberty and then kind of masculinize their, their body in a certain way. Um, anyway, so that's kind of where I was going with that article.
0: Yeah. And I, again, it's like, it's just interesting to me that you're able to make this argument from the perspective of your own body, you know, because so many people, like it, it just becomes these abstract kind of ideals that they use to make their point. But when we start from our own bodies like it makes us ask yeah like why why do you have breasts why do you have these different Mm -hmm. body parts what's the point Mm -hmm. you know are they just an obstacle to you know my quote-unquote freedom to me getting to do whatever I want but also then the question is like what do I want like is that conditioned by the ideals of a society that you know does look down on women like it's you know it evades the question of like what is my body for and i think yeah. i don't think he mentioned in this article in particular but you have mentioned you know charles taylor's work mm-hmm. on secularization and how the more we lose the sense of enchantments the sense of the material world having some sacred implication having some right. final uh some telos we could say like i feel like transgender, transgenderism is only one symptom of this disenchantment, this sense that yes. the material world is just raw material without some higher meaning. Um, and, you know, you mentioned how like eating disorders, dysmorphia, and mm-hmm. I would even argue things like self-harm yeah. come from this fact that we don't, we're not really educated to look at the body as something sacred or enchanted, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting about all of those things you just mentioned, as far as self-harm eating disorders, either those, those particular conditions, there are certain historical moments where those have become almost epidemics among young women. So there's something about young females, like females who are going through that. Like they're, you know, young females are really intense. Like they have very intense emotions. They're going through this very intensely bodily experience. Um, And they're also, I think very, very highly influenced by their peer culture at that stage of life. But it's, it's very interesting to kind of see these points in history where there's almost this unconscious feminine protest that happens in young women against some of these ideas, I think. But it ends up being a self-defeating protest, right? Because it's turned on the body. So it's almost a way of, of resisting the narratives about what it means to be a woman or what it means to have a female body, but the, it's it's turned on the body itself, right? So it's, it's not ultimately a liberating kind of protest, but there's something very sympathetic about it.
0: Yeah, and I think like, I do think a lot of like Catholic feminists miss this point, but I think you demonstrate this, like when you compare your evangelical days to where you're at now, um, if we're our way of um, engaging with secular feminism is purely from these, uh, I don't know, I guess these moralistic ideals about, you know, a woman is supposed to be, is it supposed to act like X, Y, and Z. A woman is supposed to be like this in her relationship with the man. You're evading like the metaphysical question of like, what is yeah. woman? And that starts with the body. And at the end of the day, like, no one wants to be told how to act. Like, you're not going to be reaching anyone mm-hmm. by saying, like, you should be, you know, like this. Like, but if you can say, well, if you can raise the question of, you know, what is my body? What makes it beautiful? Mm-hmm. What makes it valuable? What is it for? Um, that's where I think something revolutionary can happen because no one else is asking this. Neither, yeah. you know, I guess more moralistic, evangelical types of religious people, nor secular feminists. You know, right. and I think Catholicism sacramental ethos has the capacity to do that, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely the, the pretty revolutionary move that needs to happen is going from moralism to sacramentalism, because I, I would even push the argument further and say that the the tendency to want to talk about gender and men and women in terms of roles, and rules and that kind of moralistic framework Mm -hmm. that's very much focused on the temporal, right? It's very much focused on, you know, who's has power here, whose job is what, how do we kind of create this, these rigid rules for people to follow, that that is very much a disenchanted understanding. And and I would say ultimately then a Protestant one, a Protestant one that's tending towards secularism because Mm. it completely forecloses that whole other way of understanding all of material reality, you know, as something that's pointing toward what is, what is invisible and actually more real, the the kind of divine reality around us. And um, so that was something that I encountered in Catholicism that I had not seen anywhere. And it just seemed like this, like this key that just unlocks so much about this conversation. And I think there's a tendency in Christianity. There's a, there's a lot of different tendencies that you see crop up in different historical periods and different mm-hmm. forms. One of them is a flight from embodiment, right? There are, diff- there are lots of, of Christian sects that have been really downplayed almost, you know, to a pathological degree, the role of the body and, and yep. scapegoat the body. Mm-hmm. And there's also this temptation toward moralism, mm-hmm. you know, as so you've got the Donatists and, and then the, the Jansenists and oh, hey, the right. Pelagians, right? Yeah. So it's this, this tendency toward purity in, in that kind of moralistic way and also the tendency toward scapegoating the body. And those often go together, which I think is interesting, um, but those are two impulses I think that will always plague the church or are temptations that will always be yeah. live, but they're all, they, those are temptations that should always be resisted that are really fundamentally opposed to a Catholic understanding of reality.
0: Yeah, and that's why like I'm very cautious with religious people who want to like attack transgenderism. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's a miscalculated move because again, I I think it's a symptom of this loss of the ontological, mm-hmm. the sacramental awareness. Like, if you really want to get into it, you need to zoom out and say, okay, how have we lost a sense of the ontological meaning of the body? Which again, transgenderism is only one example. All these other things that people are going through all these other elements of the body sufferings in the body mm-hmm. like if we're just going to jump to that hot button issue then you lose a lot of people because then it just comes off as ideological right you know? but i mean before so we, we we're going to talk a little bit about white lotus and the gender implicate implications there mm-hmm. but before we do that I just wanted to reference two of two other kind of pop culture um examples that connect to what we're saying here. So one was Amy Winehouse since mm-hmm. you know you got to speak at the New York encounter and I did the exhibit about Winehouse mm-hmm. with my friends. And it's interesting that um her music really affirms the complementarity of the relationship between man and woman. Um and part of it's because like she's reacting to her difficult childhood because the father mm-hmm. cheated before she didn't feel like she could trust men so she was always looking for a man who was stronger than her you know as the song Mm -hmm. says Mm -hmm. um and you see how she really allows herself to become extremely needy to the point that it becomes destructive but right she doesn't pretend like you know i don't need no man like i Mm -hmm. i'm okay by myself she's like no i'm not okay by myself i desperately need you and if you don't come like i'm gonna go insane and there's one quote that I, we had in the exhibit where she says, I think she says, so, so much music nowadays is like, you don't, you don't know me, I don't need you. And all the music mm-hmm. back then, like the music that inspired her from the 60s and whatnot is, I don't care if you don't love me, I will lie down in the road, pull my heart out and show it to you. Mm-hmm. So that's like totally against what we're seeing today. Like you're not supposed right? to have this need. You're not supposed mm-hmm. to like look to the other to like, Complete you like you're supposed to complete yourself which is really I mean an illusion because obviously we can't complete ourselves like we right. can't give ourselves the fulfillment we're looking for and I feel like when you look at a lot of these pop stars who do push the whole independent woman thing it's really in the function to serve corporate power because like if you can convince people that they're independent and they don't need anyone then where are they going to get their sense of themselves and like what will fulfill them it's whatever the media whatever pop culture is dictating to us it's like if we can really be independent and not depend on actual human beings concrete people then we are completely dependent on again the powers that be whether that's state power or corporate power um so i don't know it's this cognitive dissonance that i feel like a lot of us a lot of young people especially look past you know
1: yeah and that i mean what you're describing the I don't need anyone to complete me. I can complete myself or the, the kind of pathological alternative, which maybe Winehouse kind of leans into, which is I'm, I'm so incomplete that, yeah. you know, I have this insatiable hunger that can, you know, I, it's like that desire in her to, I don't know, for deep love and communion and safety and trust. Yeah. You know, I think she's, she's trying to seek that inner romantic relationship, which I think ultimately that's another human being can't bear that burden, right? Only, yeah. only God can bear that burden for us. Only God can really give us safety and security, but it is so refreshing how honest she is about, Yeah, you know, she just lets it, she, you know, she let it all hang out. And that's, that's something really refreshing about her, especially in, I think this time, like you're talking about this, or the, the dominant cultural narrative is independence and autonomy and, mm-hmm. Um, almost not, you know, it's fine to use people, but it's not okay to need people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you know, I was saying how the the Netflix series Inventing Anna about Anna Delvey, like, the, what's funny to me, so it's, you know, you have Anna, who's this fraud, you know, who tricks mm-hmm. everyone and gets money from them. Then you have these other women who like, Several of them are very intent on, like, building up their career, Mm -hmm. becoming successful, um, including, I forget her name, but the one who's, like, the journalist who's going to write the exposé, who's eight months pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then you have Laverne Cox, who's, you know, M to F trans. And it's funny because she keeps repeating this phrase to herself and to the other women, like, you know, you're a bad bitch. You can do this. You're a bad bitch. Mm -hmm. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And I'm just like, this show really epitomizes what's happening not just for women but for everyone That like Mm -hmm. the ideal is to be this hardened kind of person who again doesn't need anyone and who is like capable of working their way through this matrix of success of power right um which really has no substance but you know it's like when you look at this woman this journalist who's about to give birth And like, she's on deadline and she's like, oh no, what if my water breaks when I'm about to submit the article? And it's like, why is the capacity to give life to like actually Mm -hmm. commit to another human being? Whether as a mother or a father, like why is this a side story? And like getting the article in, like making yourself, making your career, like, yeah, it makes you feel powerful, but then what? Like, Mm -hmm. really it's not gonna fulfill you in the long run. But you just see how this narrative... It's just being continually pushed. And I just wonder at what point do people question like, okay, is this actually a fulfilling narrative though? Like, where's this going to go? Right.
1: Yeah. I remember I haven't watched the whole series, but I've watched a few episodes and it was funny. I watched them on a plane while I was also reading that super weird book I reviewed called ask your husband, which is basically, you know, it's making the argument that like women shouldn't work outside the home. So Mm -hmm. it was, it was this weird experience of reading arguments that, that, you know, I think are, you know, problematic in many ways. Um, but the, the truth in that perspective, I think is that the, the idolatry of career is yeah. a problem. Like that's a not like for both men and women. Yeah. Right. But I think it pro- it poses specific problems. I think for women, um, and the, that character you're talking about, yeah, it was, it was off-putting how much she she just seemed to really resent the fact that she was pregnant and about to have a baby. She was just really resentful of it. And you know, how she kind of had you know the the nursery is this almost symbol of it, right? They have this little nursery in their home and she kind of, instead of getting the nursery ready for the baby, which her husband is trying to do, the husband is actually like way more human (laughs) and way more like, hey, this is important. What's gonna be happening. Like maybe we should focus on this. And she's like, no, I have to have this space for this article and she's so obsessed. Um, and yeah, there, there was also something very off-putting and, and pathological about it that I just thought, no, this, that, this isn't what freedom looks like. That's, that's a distorted understanding of freedom where, where you, but that I think I think that some feminist narratives that is what women are given. Like you have to kind of go to war with your own embodiment in order to succeed in the world. Yeah. And I think that narrative is is really harmful, but yeah, women do internalize it, you know, um, and it can be hard not to.
0: Yeah, I mean the larger narrative of self invention, though, like I don't know. I mean, it's just on the surface, yeah, it's convincing, but it's just very lonely. And if you're like, if you're someone like Amy Winehouse, who's very aware that you need to be loved. Like, who cares if you're a bad bitch? Who cares if you have your career and you, like, mm-hmm. you can trick all these people into believing whatever and giving you money. Like, if there isn't, again, this sense of communion, the sense of belonging to something greater than, like,
1: okay, who cares? Yep. Yeah. And you can't, you know, you can't have communion with a byline, Yeah. you know? Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, all right. So let's go into White Lotus a little bit um there's a lot going on there but mm-hmm. since you know you're the expert on gender tell me what what did you notice about like the gender dynamics and
1: like implications and what's going on in the plot yeah oh man white lotus is so fun i'm so glad you talked me into watching this i've actually watched it twice now uh there's a lot going on so you have this thread of exactly what we're talking about so one of the characters is this high powering ceo which it mm-hmm. sounds like she runs the fictional Google. of thing like she's she's almost like the ceo of google and her husband who i think feels you know their relationship is fraught he's cheated on her and is trying to kind of repair the relationship but it also is pretty clear that like she really prioritizes her career and and holds a lot of the power in the relationship and and he feels i think kind of Unsure about his own identity and place because of that. So that dynamic's interesting, and then that mirrors the dynamic of the newlyweds, where you've got this like total douchebag, like the douchiest character that I've ever seen on. on, He's oh my gosh, it's amazing, Um, and he is his wife, who you know he comes from money, super entitled, arrogant, just like, and she is this kind of like really big eyed, like mousy kind of like, Oh, I've got big boobs and big eyes. And you know, who am I kind of a character? You know, she's, I don't, I don't know why she tried. She like bothered me so much, but she is trying to start a career as a journalist, yeah but her husband's basically like, babe, you know, you don't need to work anymore. Why, why do you need to do that? But she, you know, she wants to take a deadline while they're on their honeymoon and he, he offers to pay her not to do it. Right. And then she tries to talk to the ceo like give me advice on my career and that goes sideways and anyway so you, you have that whole narrative going on like what does that look like but and then you also, also have has these, the yeah.
0: dynamic with his mother which is oh like yeah kind of freudian and he's so oblivious to, to yeah. it. Oh, know, yeah oh yeah she enables him and all that
1: oh totally totally and he yeah he hasn't even be, been able to develop a sense of self yes. in a way. like he's kind of this shadow of a person in a way too, yeah. Um, yeah. And then you've got these two teenage girls yeah. who so, one of whom is then this white, rich girl, the daughter of the CEO, and then her friend um, who it's, you don't get a lot of information about her socioeconomically, but they're clearly going to the same university. Yeah. And it seems like the friend doesn't come from um, money and she is not white. Yes. Um, but she's kind of, uh, I don't know. It's interesting. Like her, her, her story arc, but what's funny, and I know you noticed this and I actually want to ask you about this. Mm-hmm. So the books they're reading, right. These two girls are like these huge clues as to what's going on. Like the first pairing is Nietzsche and Freud, like yes. their, their beachside reading is Nietzsche and Freud. <laughs> and then later on it's, um, I think the friend is reading Fanon, I believe. Yes. I'm not sure. And then, um Paglia so then the girl is reading Camille Paglia I can't remember some of the other the other pairings. Judith
0: Butler was in there. Judith
1: Butler yeah Gender Trouble was in there so that's really interesting to me so what do you think that's about because it's all the white girl so the white girl is reading I think she's reading Freud and then Butler and then Paglia and then the friend reads Nietzsche, Fanon and then I don't know what the other one was.
0: Well, I mean, so those two characters are based on Anna and Dasha from the Red Scare podcast because Mm -hmm. the creator of the story is friendly with them. But it's kind of weird because, so like Red Scare is loosely affiliated with what they call the dirtbag left. So Mm -hmm. it's like socialists who are very anti-politically correct. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they look to people like Misha who, you know, like denigrates these ideas these enlightenment ideals of morality and then Palia, who is a feminist but in a very like again anti-correct yeah. libertarian pagan sense um so yeah I mean on the podcast they talk about Nietzsche, Freud, Palia a lot mm-hmm.
1: um that's so funny
0: yeah but Fanon and Butler I mean was really out of place if they were trying to you know emulate mm-hmm. the podcast because I mean they had an episode where they totally destroyed Butler um, mm-hmm. and talked about <laughs> they said that uh, Butler's evil Camille Paglia so, <laughs> yeah I mean I don't know why he threw that in because like sometimes they would have these woke takes and I'm like yeah they do supposed to be these ironic socialist kind of you know millennial gen z but i don't know it was just a little vague but i what i did take from them is like at least olivia the white one is always kind of making fun of her mother who's this mm-hmm. i guess what well, gen x boomer yeah white feminist liberal woman who like you know all about hillary clinton all about you yeah know, lean Syria.
1: in like, yeah mm-hmm.
0: yeah and it's like you can see the effect that it has on the family that the father feels emasculated he feels mm-hmm. useless the son also has no oh, sense of son. dignity so the the daughter is just like kind of ironically making fun of mm. everything that the mother stands for um but yeah like i i think what stands out to me is how oblivious the mother is that she's like so caught up in her ideals and being a career yeah. woman but like do you not see the effect that this has on your family that this is all kind of vapid now your Mm -hmm. husband and your children suffer not to put it all on her I mean I think the father has some responsibility himself but right she's got to let him be a husband at a certain point
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and that's the whole point of that's the
1: whole that's what happens at the end right when he he like when he rescues her and then they have like sex for the first time and you know we get the sense they haven't had sex in a long time and but then that 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 feeling of him protecting her kind of mm-hmm. um yeah it, it it rebalances their relationship and enough that they're able to desire each other again right yeah yeah but yeah. then I mean I don't know it's tricky because it's I don't know you don't want to go in this direction where it's like well women shouldn't work you yeah, know this is like the ask your husband thing right like well, women shouldn't yeah. work outside the. I mean that's really kind of the argument that 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 whole crew makes is Well, you know, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to have sex unless the man is the man and the woman is the wifey and submissive and the man's like, boom. Right. And so like, you have these caricatures, right? These extremes. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of the point I make when I write about this stuff that these are like mirror images of each other, that anytime you have either a woman dominating a man or a man dominating a woman, like both of those are distortions, um, that, yeah, yeah.
0: Because it sounds like, you know, the listen to your husband thing, it's reducing complementarity to a moralism. Like you should behave like this rather than it's, I think it's complementarity. It's a matter of awareness, attentiveness Mm -hmm. to your spouse and and their uniqueness, their, you know, unique gifts as husband or wife. So like, yeah, I think you do need to respect that if you're in a marriage that your spouse has different gifts that they bring to the table. And you yeah. need to give them space to to share that. But that doesn't necessarily translate into these very strict directives like, oh, you're a woman, you're receptive, you're the one who mm-hmm. carries life, therefore you must stay at home
1: Exactly. or else.
0: Like it's right. not, that's not really, that's not really how Catholic morality works in the first place. But right. But no, like you see how when you lose sight of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to give to each other. Um, yeah you fall into that extreme of you know the super career woman who emasculates her husband but also then you have the douchebag husband who doesn't realize that like her his wife legitimately wants to have a career Mm -hmm. and also he never listens to her like he's you know um, completely
1: dismissive of her like he you know he just wants this like trophy wife yeah so those yeah those two couples exemplify that mirror image that I was just talking about yeah
0: The other one I was going to bring up is Jennifer Coolidge's character. So like the woman who lost her mother
1: Mm -hmm. and is like
0: constantly fixated on what she's going to do with the ashes. Yeah. Um, I'm picking up a little bit of maybe like a Freudian hysterical woman kind of motif, which we also Mm -hmm. see like in these late modern critiques of like the female mystical saints that they were just like sexually repressed and hysterical. Right. Um what did you see there?
1: Hmm. Well, it's funny, like, since we were talking about Amy Winehouse earlier and her kind of pathological neediness, I feel Mm -hmm. like this character is similar, right? I mean, she's, so she, yeah, she's carrying around the ashes of her dead mother, not really sure what to do with them. But then it also comes out that actually her mother was terribly abusive and a terrible Mm -hmm. mother, right? So it seems like this woman, who, who kind of comes off as, I mean, her character is so, so she's so wonderful as an actor. Um, it, it reminded me, she seemed borderline to me, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. like that borderline personality. Um, and she like latches on to, um, Oh, what's the character's name? The spa spa. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. So she latches onto that character, but then as soon as she can latch onto a man, then she like completely kind of abandons. Yep. So yeah, you, you get that sense that she is, has this like deep yawning abyss of need within her. Like she just is this little girl who was never loved well and is still not loved well. And so she tries to use her money to get people to love her well, Mm -hmm. um, which doesn't really work because people either use her or she uses them. Um, yeah, that was kind of my, my sense of her character
0: yeah, and ultimately, what I love about White Lotus is that it's not pushing an agenda. or if it is, like you really have to figure out like, what is this really saying? because there's so many different arcs, so many different narratives that you're seeing, but it's not clear like that one is the correct one, one is the good one, and one is the bad. Like it's just mm-hmm. really, I think it's meant to just provoke thought and really make you reflect on our culture today, which, That's what art should do. Like art shouldn't be propaganda. Yes, the right position to take. It should really make you look at yourself and be like, "Yeah, like what is this really about? What does this say about us?"
1: Yeah, Yeah. no, it's brilliant, honestly. And because it starts out, I mean, the satire is anyone who's worked in the service industry. You should watch this because it's so cathartic. But then it, the way the ending, I mean, the ending just takes this turn that's. Kind of a gut punch, you know, except for Quinn. I mean, Quinn is so interesting too. Like, I think his, in some ways, he's the most interesting character to me because he kind of shows how little our culture offers young men in terms of being able to form a positive sense of identity. And so he's, you know, he's just kind of floating through life, like addicted to screens, you know, addicted to porn, has no direction, no sense of self respect his father doesn't seem to have a sense of self-respect, you know, his sister's constantly berating him. And then, you know, they'll go to dinner and have conversations about how, how like, you know, empowered men are, you know, in this ironic way, because the two men in the family are just like, you know, but, you know, then there's this other layer too, where of course, like they're also very rich and very wealthy and they've got options in a way that the people who actually work at the white Lotus do not. So there's this brilliant class, Yes. critique as well because oh, yeah. there is a sense that the rich white people you know are they have more options they're able to leave the island they're able to get out of it you know and both Belinda that's what it is both Belinda yes. you know Belinda tries to kind of get out of her class situation and and it's unsuccessful um and then Armand of course you know okay. tries to he's an amazing character anyway yeah. um yeah so the class the class critique stuff is really interesting oh, yeah. but yeah. but then that so what do you think about the end when Quinn is that a hopeful ending or you know is that I because the fact that he he basically pieces out of that whole world in a way that mm-hmm. seems like what it is it seems like this narrative of I'm a van, you know I don't want to be in this like decadent, meaningless life anymore. And so I at 16, I'm basically going to run away and just go, you know, live with these bros on the the island and be in a boating crew.
0: Yeah, I mean, that spoke to me in a lot of ways because I feel like a lot of us, oh, especially a lot of like millennial males, maybe even Gen Z males, like because we're so disillusioned I should, I mean, I should be specific like privilege, especially white growing up in suburbia. Like it's, you're very disillusioned with the options afforded you. Like you have a million options, but none of them are really Mm -hmm. substantial. So that spoke to me because like when I discovered, you know, this kind of religious path, a lot of people like that's ridiculous. What are you Mm -hmm. doing? Um, But I was like, I need something else. And I think some people turn to kind of extreme stuff, weird stuff, cults, drugs, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But for him, that was his way. So I don't know, maybe it's going to turn into something kind of weird and freaky. Maybe it will be the opening to like a real discovery of, you know, the truth, what life is about. So
1: I mean, I read it as hopeful to me, like, I just was like, he's, you know, he's. He's broken out of this bubble of meaninglessness. Yes. And he has found, like for the first time in the entire series, he's tasted what a meaningful life could look like. And he just okay. chooses that. Um, But I do think there is something pessimistic in that he's, you know, he's able to get away from the island and like say Belinda isn't, you know?
0: Yeah. and I, I think that's saying that's something. For the, yeah. the class and also become the race critique. Yep. Yeah. comes into play but I do think it's m- more hopeful at least than Olivia's fate because like she's oh, yeah. just that ironically time. criticizing stuff from the sidelines but isn't actually chasing after anything substantial oh, yeah. whereas he like he finds people he can share life with he finds brothers mm-hmm. you know yeah so th- that's already something substantial you
1: yeah. know so this reminds me when I was watching this with my husband and so the men the Hawaiian men who are rowing Uh and they invite Quinn in this like awkward kind of, you know, silly, like white kid to join their crew. And there he, my husband was like, he was like, that is authentic masculinity right there because they're, you know, they're like, they're, they're strong. And they're like, you know, doing this like masculine activity, whatever, rowing this boat, you know, they're tattooed, whatever, but they're also just so generous
0: with themselves.
1: Mm -hmm. And they they reach out to him and they include him and they allow him to discover a giftedness that none of his parents or no one else has allowed him to discover. And I feel like that, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot about, okay, well, what is the masculine genius if there's this kind of feminine genius? And I think one of the, one of the facets of the masculine genius is helping other people discover their full potential and kind of using their, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and you see that in, in how those men, interact with Quinn because they're, you know, they're, they're native Hawaiians, you know, you don't get a sense that they're particularly privileged in any way, but they're also not full of resentment. Um, they're also not, you know, bitter. they just seem like very at home with themselves and yeah. that sense of kind of confidence and strength enables them to be really generous to Quinn and kind of help him discover a positive sense of masculinity. So I really liked Quinn's yeah. story arc a lot
0: yeah no I was skeptical at first when they welcomed him on the boat at first I thought they were like playing with him or were gonna screw mm-hmm. around but just mm-hmm. see men who like again are strong and are, are doing something very physical very mm-hmm. you know taking up a challenge a risk but are very welcoming and want to support someone yeah. want to train someone like yeah that's when you see true masculinity is ultimately a form of love because it's fatherhood yes it's to generate exactly. as a father which exactly. yeah like, involves the physical involves Mm -hmm. again this sense of taking up a challenge but ultimately sure that could go in a toxic direction Mm -hmm. but ultimately it is toward it towards self-gift towards love yeah
1: Yeah. and that's what they do like it doesn't go in this toxic direction yeah so So. i I mean at least in what we see but yeah it's a good show
0: So we recommend white Lotus. Absolutely. Yes. And there's
1: a second season, which is exciting. That'll take place in Rome. Yeah, That should be fun. Uh, There's a lot that could happen there. I'm like, Ooh, interesting.
0: We will see. We'll see. So, um, so Abigail, what do you want to plug before we go?
1: Oh, um,
0: your new book is coming out.
1: That'd probably be it. So I have a book called the Genesis of gender. You can pre-order it already. I don't know when this podcast will come out, but it It officially is released on May 1st. You can pre-order it on the Ignatius website. It's with Ignatius press. And it, you know, it really goes into a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, if you're interested that, or, you know, my memoir, if you're interested in more of my weird conversion story, um, I have one little toe in social media on Twitter. So you can follow me on Twitter at Favali abs. And that's, that's kind of it.
0: Yeah, you got some good hot takes on there, especially about mom <laughs> stuff.
1: I kind of thank mind. you. I do. I don't know. Twitter's fun. I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a feast and famine kind of Twitter person. Like, suddenly yeah. I'll be on. there will be like a flurry, <laughs> and I'm on there a lot. And then I'm like, whoa, okay, I'm gonna take a couple weeks off. So, but yeah, it's
0: fun. Well, Aweel, thank you for coming on.
1: Yeah, this is great. We'll do it again because I, I really like this podcast. It's. It's interesting. It's uh, it's unlike other podcasts that I that I listen to. You have a good niche.
0: Thank you. We hope to have you on soon.
1: Yeah. Right. Good.